0: Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm David McKechnie. A desperate situation has developed in recent weeks on Myanmar's border with Bangladesh as hundreds of thousands of people flee a military crackdown on the country's Rohingya minority. Erin Kilbride, of frontline defenders, will join us from Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh where people who have walked for days from their homes are seeking help against a background of terrible violence and inadequate aid. Berlin correspondent Derek Scali will set the scene for Sunday's general election in Germany, which seems certain to see Angela Merkel return to office, but which will also see a significant vote for the far-right AFD party. To what degree do Germans itch for something new? Later on, London editor Dennis Staunton will look ahead to Theresa May's much-anticipated Brexit speech in Florence this Friday. With Boris Johnson laying down a Brexit marker in recent days, have the Prime Minister's intentions been compromised? A humanitarian catastrophe is unfolding near Myanmar's border with Bangladesh as some 400,000 Rohingya Muslims have fled Myanmar since a violent crackdown by security forces in late August. There are reports of razed villages and brutal killings. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has called it a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. And yet, with little sign of intervention by either the international community or the Myanmar government of Aung San Suu Kyi, the the situation is only getting worse. Erin Kilbride of Frontline Defenders is near the border, and she joins me now. Erin, can you tell us exactly where you are and and describe the situation there?
1: Sure. So I spent a couple of days um, about an hour from Cox's Bazaar, close to the Bangladesh-Myanmar border. So Cox's Bazaar is about the closest that you can stay, and it's where you'll find most of the aid organizations and um, UN groups and that sort of thing who are going to the area either to help or to investigate. Um, And so effectively, what is happening is that I think we're up to 410,000 people at least have have crossed over in the past few weeks. Um, Hundreds of thousands of those are now in what could generously be called camps on the muddy hillsides of the border on the Bangladesh side. Most are packed pretty tightly together a few miles from where they originally crossed over. Um, As I'm sure you've seen, food, clothing and medical aid is all really desperately needed. The scale of the need is immense, um, and aid certainly has not been arriving fast enough.
0: Okay, and, and what are these uh, these people, these displaced people, saying about their experiences and their and their journeys?
1: So most people, um, just to start with the injuries, um, are saying that they were sustained either in what they're calling a, a military slaughter. Slaughter is the word that most of them are using. Um, on their villages and that they hadn't been able to see a doctor since they left um, Myanmar. Others were also injured um, along the route, which in some cases was up to 15 days of walking or canoeing. Um, So the types of things that people are reporting, I mean, generally deal with military attacks on on civilians. Definitely people are saying that a few days of fighting between what they call Rohingya militants and um, the army in Myanmar, preceded what then became the military burning down their villages. So I would say the majority of people that I've spoken to in maybe 40 to 50 conversations with refugees and and you know among those human rights defenders who have a background in documenting this sort of thing, um, the majority of people coming over say that they saw their villages burned down. Those who didn't actually see it heard from people in neighboring villages who passed through theirs that their villages had indeed burned down. And many of those who saw it who say that they saw it with their own eyes are also saying that they saw the military set these homes on fire. Some people were actually inside when their houses started to burn. Um, you know, so as much as we have people saying that bullets flew past them and they, you know, they saw them shoot other people. One woman said that a bullet flew past her shoulder and she saw it enter the stomach of another young woman. Um, we're also having people who are saying that their children sustained burn wounds um, when their houses caught on fire. I mean one mother was was lifting up her children's clothes to show me these sort of thick, gaping um, burns that were covering, you know, large pieces of their backs or their legs, because the military had set the house on fire, according to the mother, when um, her children were sleeping, and she couldn't reach them in time before the pieces of the roof started to fall down. So there are quite a few burn wounds that I've been seeing, particularly on children, um, those who weren't able to get out of the house in time. And there have also been some bullet wounds, including on children. Um, one mother showed me a bullet wound on her five-year-old daughter's stomach, which she said no doctor had seen yet. And this again is another huge problem that comes back to the lack of aid. I mean, she hadn't been informed where to find medical care. It's quite hard to seek out on your own. And even when she did know that, that it was available, that there was a hospital, you know, a certain number of miles away, she certainly couldn't afford the transport to get there. Um, Hospitals here are, are completely overwhelmed as our aid groups. You know, locals are are doing what they can to provide care. Um, local human rights defenders and activists, those who typically work on, um, you know, human rights and advocacy, some even on microfinance, are putting that work on hold and transitioning their small offices into first aid clinics. Um, there's one group of human rights defenders that, went that that rented out a wedding hall and transitioned it into an emergency kitchen, right? And they're now driving a couple thousand meals a day down to the border to feed people. Others are driving people to hospital. Um, but what's actually complicating this is some new restrictions and statements that have been put out by the police forbidding that type of, of activity. So it's it's been pretty widely reported that, um, you know, the government has forbid refugees from leaving the Cox's Bazar area. But in the same police statement, kind of less reported has been the fact that they also instructed locals not to be giving rides to or providing shelter to refugees. And so this is, you know, putting an incredible kind of burden and and some fear into local human rights defenders who were becoming emergency aid workers and are now feeling like these small bits of things that they were doing are now dangerous. Um, And this is kind of compounding existing self-censorship and existing fears around working on the Rohingya issue in general because, of course, it's so political and dangerous to work on.
0: Sure, and what what are the aid agencies? What can they do there? The ones that are there, and obviously they need more aid getting in there. But um, how can they address this? Mm. What sounds like an awful situation.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think the the first thing to say is certainly that the people who are here are working day and night and working as hard as they can. Um, absolutely. And there's also, you know, I mean, there, there's refugees themselves who are, of course, building their own shelters and helping out the aid groups as much as they can. There's, there's local groups of, you know, volunteers who are loading up trucks and driving down the main road and, and throwing packages off. And it's, It's well-intentioned, but it's of course also creating a bit of danger. I mean, I've seen children and and, um, elderly, even a pregnant woman, actually be um, sort of pushed around and and jostled and handled quite physically as people attempt to get to this aid because there is so little of it, right? So there, you know, I mean, a lot of the major groups are nominally here, but off the record, they will express quite a bit of frustration at um, the existing bureaucracy and the the types of um, permissions that they need to take from the government. And it's also quite political, right? So, I mean, the UNHCR, the UN's refugee body, can only officially work in two camps. And these camps are um, for refugees that were here from from past waves, right, from past waves of the conflict. So, I mean, some of these people have been here since the 90s. So, technically, the UNHCR it would, would be operating outside of its mandate in Bangladesh if it were to start bringing in aid trucks um, and assisting these refugees in the way that kind of everyone would like to see. So there's a, a bit of a catch-22 for both locals and international groups that are doing their best, um, but being kind of caught up in, in the red tape.
0: Yeah, I, it, it sounds sounds like a terrible situation. I, I, I read that, uh, according to UNICEF, some 60% of the, of the refugees are children, uh, which is an astonishing figure. I, I, I suppose it suggests families have been split up. How are these uh, children being looked after?
1: Uh, by their mothers and their fathers and, and their siblings and their family and, you know, refugees in the tent next door as much as possible. Um, I You know, again, UNICEF is doing its best, but just driving down the main road that leads from, it's effectively kind of one long winding road that takes you from Cox's Bazaar right down to the border. And so driving down this highway, I mean, you know, just simply glancing around, the majority of children that you see who appear to be under the age of three would be naked. Maybe they are wearing kind of a light pair of shorts or, or a wet t-shirt or something like that, but probably not both. Um, the majority of small children that I've seen have been naked. And when you ask their parents, do you have clothes for these children? Usually they say, we weren't able to take anything. We have one pair and it's wet because as soon as we get it dry, the rain starts again. That's a kind of additional cruelty that's been present in the situation is that it rains quite a bit um, and so that you know that impacts their ability to keep their children clean it impacts their ability to keep them dry and to keep them healthy there's um, immense fear amongst the mothers that their children are going to contract pneumonia one who actually had been able to visit a doctor was told that all of her children did indeed have pneumonia but I mean there's no real ability to treat this sort of thing right um, there are, a number of mothers who I've spoken to who actually gave birth on the way. Um, I was speaking to one woman with a very small baby in her hands and she told me that he was 20 days old and that she had been in the camp for 15 days. Now, knowing that the journey takes more than five days, I followed up with, so where exactly did you give birth? And she said that she gave birth on the Myanmar side of the border just before getting into a canoe. Right. So, I mean, this is the sort of, and, you know, had neither she nor her new baby had seen a doctor yet. I mean, this is the sort of thing that women are experiencing. There are incredibly high um, numbers for the estimates that people are giving of the number of pregnant women in camp. Um, I've spoken to a few and there's just immense fear that they will not be able to to care for their children.
0: I guess, I guess, first of all, these people want to survive, but is there is there any sense of of them wanting, looking to the future and, 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 you know, whether they might return to their homes or or what will happen to them?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, certainly you're 100 percent correct. The the big thing that people want right now is food, shelter, medical care, um, particularly the ones with children. I mean, the the mothers are the ones sort of asking the most desperately for someone to come and and to tend to their children's wounds. Right. Right. in the long run there are there are a few different um, positions being expressed. You know, definitely it's th- the Rohingya themselves that have come over are very aware of the fact that they have entered into a country that does not have the money to sustain them in the long term, right? They know that. At the same time, um, as much as, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi made in her speech today, um, full assur- full assurances of security for verified refugees who return home, it's very much unclear what this means. And of course, human rights defenders here are incredibly skeptical of this. Um, a lot of people that I've spoken to have said that under no conditions would they go back, not because they want to raise their children in refugee camps, but because the horrors that they experienced, it's, it's incomprehensible to them that I could even be asking them about returning. You know, I mean, one man said to me, What exactly do you think I would be returning to? I watched my village burn to the ground. There, there's nothing to return to. Um, you know, so there's. There's a few different um, schools of thought. One holds that a, a peacekeeping mission would be necessary. Nobody has too much faith in the idea of sanctions. Um, and at the same time, there, there's also a fear of forced repatriation, right? So as much as it's unclear what um, Aung San Suu Kyi means when she says verified refugees would be welcome back, there's equally a fear on this side of the border um, that that people might be forced to go home because there is a history of that of Rohingya being forcibly returned to ongoing conflict zones and to persecution in Myanmar, and and then either dying or coming back. So that's also strong in the memory of activists who have been here for um, for a few decades now. And so there's there's quite a bit of fear, kind of no matter no matter which way it goes.
0: You mentioned Aung San Suu Kyi's speech. She made a speech today um, addressed to the nation. Uh, She she did condemn the abuses in Rakhine State uh, but she didn't criticise the army uh, and she said she did not fear the international community.
2: I understand that many of our friends throughout the world are concerned by reports of villages being burned and of hordes of refugees fleeing. We too are concerned. We want to find out what the real problems are. There have been allegations and counter-allegations, and we have to listen to all of them.
1: In her speech, you know, she also claimed that there have been no no conflicts and no clearance operations, as she called them in Rakhine, since September 5th. and. I think it's just important to note that that directly contradicts um, both the firsthand accounts from refugees that I've been hearing who have fled those clearance operations um, after September 5th, and it also contradicts the accounts of human rights defenders who are still on the ground, right? I was meeting with someone yesterday who still has a network of colleagues in Rakhine working to document what's happening and, um, you know, her speech just directly contradicts their results. So after her speech, the UN Human Rights Council called for access to see it with its own eyes. That's something that's been more or less impossible in Rakhine for years. Um, International human rights um, organizations, journalists, the UN, we've all sort of been banned from that area and now they're they're issuing a renewed call for access to see what's happening. but I do think it's important to note that there are still human rights defenders there who are, you know, who are documenting this, and and their accounts go directly against what she said to us today.
0: Okay, Erin Kilbride of Frontline Defenders, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Germans go to the polls this Sunday for a general election in which Angela Merkel is set to secure a remarkable fourth term in office, reaffirming her dominant position in European politics and arguably her role as the world's most powerful woman. But despite the near certainty of the outcome, the election campaign has thrown up food for thought in terms of changing attitudes in Germany, including the rise in support for the far-right anti-immigrant Alternative for Deutschland Party. I'm joined joined by our Berlin correspondent, Derek Scally. Derek, you've travelled around the country a lot in recent weeks. What impressions do you have of Germany's state of mind in 2017?
3: Well, I think the mood is very much one of ambivalence. On the one hand, people are very grateful. uh, Most people are very grateful to have somebody like Angela Merkel um, holding the reins at a time with uh, North Korea and Russia and Turkey and Donald Trump and the White House. So uh, many people are very happy that she's there. On the other hand, I sense a certain amount of resignation that, I mean, not that they're taking her for granted, but they've had 12 years of this now. And eventually people start looking for something new. I don't think they're looking for anything new on Sunday. Everyone I've spoken to said, look, there's no real mood for change at the moment. But, you know, Germany's changing. The challenges are growing. And uh, Angela Merkel, of course, in the last term, did her remarkable refugee policy, bringing in over a million people in the space of about 18 months. And that has had consequences. People are worried about a lack of control. Losing control in Germany, I think, is the worst possible thing you can do as a politician. And some parties, including this far-right party, are appealing or pushing people's buttons that, yes, there have been some attacks, but more could be coming down the line. Uh, Germany is uh, no longer under control. There's sort of an Islamist plot against Germany. And as we've seen in other countries, this sense of uh, Of insecurity combined with sort of a self referential view of people who may not necessarily have problems now but feel they might have them tomorrow that 's quite attractive that 's quite potent. so I think the thing to watch on Sunday is not how Angela Merkel does, but how well this uh, far right party does
0: are, are the, are the AFd getting getting much support outside of their their regular base, if you like um, they are appealing to, to are they appealing to a broader church?
3: They are. I mean, Germany is not uh, is not like the U.S. and it's not like uh, France or or the Netherlands, where there's been a far right base there for a very long time. Many people here just thought classic far right xenophobic um, views couldn't work in Germany because of its uh, extreme past. But what the AFD have done is quite clever. They've taken um, concerns about things like the euro crisis uh, and financial concerns about you know the cost of Europe to Germany. And they've used that as a wrapping for good old-fashioned racism, xenophobia and what have you. So there's two wings in the party, it's sort of a conservative liberal wing. And they sort of say, we're concerned about Germany's future. So lots of um, professors in tweed jackets wringing their hands. But on the other hand, in Eastern Germany, you have quite blatant racism, xenophobia, um, Germany for the Germans and so on. So uh, using appealing to whatever audience they are in front of, they've managed to get them to double digit growth. And um, we're up to about 10 to 12 percent in polls. The question now is, will there be people who will vote for them who won't admit that to opinion pollsters when they when their phone rings? So that's it's 10 percent plus X. And the question is, how big will that X be on Sunday evening at 6 p.m.?
0: How has Angela Merkel been during this campaign? I mean, has she impressed, or or is she more or less going through the motions at this stage?
3: Well, Angela is Angela. I mean, she doesn't. Um, she's always it's always like a, a queen who arrives. I wrote in the Irish Times two weeks ago, she's a bit like Linda the Good Witch from The Wizard of Oz. She sort of floats into rallies, she says some things and she floats away again in a cloud of bubbles. So she gives people the impression as one person told me, that everything is okay and everything is going to be okay in the future. Just give me your vote. And um, Germany is doing okay on paper. There's a 1.6 growth and um, unemployment is at a, a post-unification low. So on paper, everything's fine. But increasingly, people I spoke to completely without prompting were saying to me, yes, but worried about the future. What about diesel? I mean, the German car industry is, a, is the backbone of the German economy and it's not looking too healthy right now because of diesel manipulation. There's the whole question about digitalization. Will German industry... Uh, make the leap into the next industrial revolution. And then, of course, there is this um, immigration question. Germany has been remarkable in integrating uh, all these people who have come from Syria, from Afghanistan and Northern Africa. But the question is, where does that go in the future? And then there's the fourth issue, demographics. Germany is a very old country and it's getting older. Uh, By the middle of uh, the century, uh, one in two people will be over 50. And that means one person will be earning and one person will be drawing attention. So many people were hoping that Angela Merkel will be a bit more concrete about what's coming next. But that's never been what Merkel does in elections. She always just sort of gives a nice warm feeling. And if you want more security, if you want more of that, vote for me.
0: From the outside, it, it does seem remarkable that, that she can coast to victory despite allowing uh, a million refugees into the country two years ago. Um, and I suppose in other countries, that might be a death knell for, for a politician's election chances. Uh, the fact that it isn't, is that, is that because um, of those uh, the people are more concerned with those other policies, economic policies and all that sort of stuff? Well, I think it's two things. I think
3: um, they don't really see any alternative to her. I mean, the alternative for Deutschland was a, a party that came around. Its name is based on the idea that Angela Merkel claims she has. there's no alternative to her policy, So they came around based on that. But I think most mainstream voters, if you ask them, they will say, well, we respect Merkel. We might not like a party, but we respect her. Uh, and then the other issue is that, yes, Germany took in one million refugees, and it did come as a surprise to most people. But More more than that, the great surprise to Germany is that, you know what, social order didn't break down. And many people here would say, um, you know what, we're slightly worried about some people who may have come in, uh, IS uh, militants claiming to be asylum seekers. But uh, if Germany, a country of Germany's size, of Germany's prosperity... If they, if we can't do this, if we can't pull our weight, um, what hope is there for the world? So I think there's a there's a silent uh, middle middle Germany that really hasn't been pulled over by the extremists. Will probably re- slightly resigned, uh, but full of respect, give Merkel their vote. And I think that that Germany has really been overlooked in this. We, we journalists like to focus on extremes, uh, and the AfD has done a very clever provocative campaign. Every week there's a they sort of uh, they send up a new provocative balloon and all the journalists try and shoot it down. But there's a centre in Germany that is still very stable, getting older, perhaps not as rich as it used to be, but quite stable. And when you look around at what's happening in the world, uh, that's probably a good place to be right now. You,
0: you wrote, you've you written about the uh, opposition Social Democrats or the SPD and, and how their initial promise in the campaign fell apart. What has gone wrong, wrong for Martin, Martin Schultz and his party?
3: Well, I mean, what's gone wrong for him is what's been going wrong for the party for the last 15 years. Back in the day, 2002, 2003, the German economy was on the skids, and the Social Democrats were in power at the time. Gerhard Schroeder was the chancellor, and he put forward economic and social reforms that for one half of the country was an overdue modernization of the economy, of the labor market, and so on. But for uh, another half of the country, including most of his voters, this was a betrayal of what a center left Social Democrat party should do, Many of them never forgave. Many of them abandoned the party, and even those who still vote for the SPD are sort of wishing for a slightly more left-wing tint to their politics. Um, Mr. Schulz has kept the party very much in the middle ground. There's an old adage in Germany that elections are won in the centre, not on the fringes. The trouble is, though, that Angela Merkel has become the centrist politi- politician of choice. Angela Merkel. It's a centrist chancellor, and uh, people are saying, well, why would we vote for a centrist SPD, a Social Democrat, if we've already got Merkel? And then if you're a hardcore left winger, if you're a Corbynite, you have the left party to vote for. That's the reformed Communist Party. So the SPD is really a party with nowhere to go at the moment. Whichever way it turns, whichever way it adapts, uh, there's already a party occupying that space. So if, as we expect, they'll do quite poorly on Sunday with around 20% plus something, and um, they will probably end up in opposition and have some hard thinking to do about what does social democracy look like in the 21st century.
0: So if they do, do end up in opposition, what, what is, is the likely makeup of the next government and, and what, what effect well, might that have on policy?
3: Well, yes, at the moment, the Social Democrats are propping up Merkel in their second grand coalition, so the two big parties working together. But the the thinking here is that the SPD is in such a desolate state, they really need to be in opposition. That would mean Merkel needs new coalition partners, one old and one new. The Free Democrats she worked with between 2009 and 2013, they're a liberal pro-business party, so they're probably already in the mix. Um, and then there's the Greens, because Merkel may need a second coalition partner because of this new AFD. They sort of turned the arithmetic for the Bundestag parliament on their head. And she may need a third party for the first time. That could be the Greens. But the Greens and Merkel's party have never worked together, let alone with these uh, pro-business liberals. So I think uh, the election has been quiet and low-key, even by German standards. But I think the post-election period after Sunday coalition talks. I think that's when things will warm up considerably here in Germany.
0: Okay, and at the risk of looking too far ahead, um, could we expect the same Merkel or or something slightly different into the future in a a fourth term? Um, Does she have any unfinished business No,
3: I think Merkel doesn't really think in those terms. Um, This is probably going to be her. If she gets in for a fourth term, it will probably be her last term, everyone says to me. Um, But her officials have told me, look, don't expect uh, revolution. She doesn't think in terms of revolution. It'll be evolution. So while there are younger newer leaders in Europe, like Emmanuel Macron in Paris, looking for a reformed Eurozone and so on, Merkel always works in terms of small evolutionary steps. Um, so there may be some tinkering here and there, but I don't think she's going to try and reinvent the wheel, I'm not at home
0: and not in Europe. Derek Scully in Berlin, thanks for joining us. And now to Brexit. Almost six months since Britain triggered Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, starting the process that will see it leave the European Union, and the government still appears to be in disarray over its Brexit strategy. Prime Minister Theresa May will make a major Brexit speech in Florence this Friday, but, but the build-up to that has been overshadowed by politicking in the Conservative Party, with Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson laying out his personal Brexit vision in a 4,000-word essay in the Daily Telegraph that has raised questions about May's authority in the process. Home Secretary Amber Rudd has even accused Johnson of backseat driving, a claim which May had to rebut at a press conference in Canada yesterday.
3: Can you say that you are truly in command of your Cabinet and Brexit policy, and will you tolerate more backseat driving in future?
2: Look, the UK government is driven from the front, and we all have the same destination in our sights. And that is getting a good deal for Brexit.
0: I'm joined by London editor Dennis Staunton. Dennis, what is Boris Johnson up to? Uh, he's
2: up to a couple of things. One is that he, as you say, has... Uh, uh, thrown the cat among the pigeons where the Brexit policy is concerned. He seems to have had a beef that he felt that he was cut out of the preparations for Theresa May's speech on Friday in Florence, and that generally speaking he's been cut out of the the whole process of developing the Brexit strategy. So he dropped this bombshell on the uh, Telegraph on Saturday morning, 4,000 words, in which he said it's time to have uh, a much more upbeat approach to Brexit and he repeated a number of controversial claims, including this idea that uh, Britain would get £350 million back every week if it leaves the European Union and they could spend that on the National Health Service. Uh, But he didn't get actually, although it was 4,000 words long, he didn't get into too many specifics uh, about what exactly his problem is with the direction of the policy uh, but what we've learned since then is that uh, the cabinet is effectively split with probably most of them behind this idea that you should have uh, a transition uh, after Britain leaves the European Union in March 2019. So for, say, two years or possibly longer, the things more or less remain the same. And then that after that, Uh, that you should have some arrangement with uh, the European Union, which is as close as possible to the status quo, so that you have uh, have very few barriers or very few changes that business is going to have to make. Now, what Boris Johnson and his allies say is, no, that you don't want to have this. You don't really want to have something which is like Norway or Switzerland, where even if you're not in the European Union or even not in the single market, that somehow that you kind of track all of the regulations that the EU makes and that you mimic those and that you'd have to pay in to have access to the market. They say, no, we didn't have Brexit for this. What we want is something much more similar to the arrangement between Canada and the European Union, so-called CETA, this trade agreement, which is basically about tariff-free trade. But each side is allowed to continue regulating things like the environment and various other things in their own way. So that it removes tariff barriers, but not what they call non-tariff barriers. So you don't try to harmonize regulation. So this uh, is all happening at an awkward time for Theresa May, because she's due to make her speech on Friday.
0: Yes I suppose we we know these things in terms of hard and soft brexit at this stage and how 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 hard is the brexit uh, Boris Johnson is looking for
2: well, it's, it's it's a harder one. So I suppose that, you know what I think we we thought was happening until uh, the weekend was that the cabinet was coalescing around a relatively soft Brexit. So that I think they all more or less agree, including Boris Johnson, that you're going to have to have a transition arrangement, and that during that transition arrangement, that you're going to have to keep things as similar as possible to the the status quo and that for that in return for that that britain would have to continue to pay into the european budget for say two years uh, and so they all agree on that it's what happens after that is the difference and so really what uh, boris johnson and company are saying is you actually uh, don't want to tie yourself too closely to the European Union from then on because there, there are great dividends to be gained from liberating yourself, as they would say, from all the regulations that uh, that come with EU membership. And so there's no point in leaving, only to have to kind of continue abiding by the rules that, you, know, that you, you decided to give up on. But the other part, I think, that's important in terms of what Boris Johnson is doing is that he's saying, let's all cheer up a bit, because the whole Brexit conversation has become a bit depressing. Even for the Brexiteers, they're talking about the problems. They're talking about the difficulties that business is going to have to adjust. And he's kind of saying, look, don't forget that uh, in this campaign, you remember all our greatest hits where we were saying it's going to be sunlit uplands and you get your 350 million uh, you know, back every week and everything is going to be great. So I think it's, there's a kind of a political appeal that that his tone has to a lot of people who back Brexit, particularly in the Conservative Party. And so the, the, you know, where every, what everybody is wondering now is what happens next? Uh, Theresa May has called a meeting of her cabinet for Thursday where she's going to present them with a draft of her speech that she's going to make on Friday and ask for their backing for that. Boris Johnson in New York today said that he doesn't plan to resign. There was some talk that he might have, but then today he may not plan to resign, but who knows whether he does or not. If Boris Johnson were to resign, uh, then that would really uh, be a potential challenge to Theresa May. And this is coming maybe a week ahead of the Conservative Party conference. And so once again, Theresa May's position as prime minister and leader of the Conservative Party, which seemed reasonably secure a couple of weeks ago, it's now suddenly in doubt again because of what Boris Johnson has done.
0: All of this, of course, stems from, from her weak election mandate. And, and is there anything she can do about that or, or, or will do about that?
2: I think the key really is the, the extent to which she can unite the party and, or particularly, the cabinet behind her. So, if uh, whatever formulation she comes up with, and, and what she may do is that she may back away from making uh, a bold offer to the European Union on Friday. The purpose of this speech was supposed to be to move the negotiations with the EU along by saying, this is what we want, and this is what we're prepared to offer, uh, and to give some idea of uh, both what they want from the transitional arrangement, but also what they hoped the end point would be, the final arrangement between Britain and the European Union after it leaves. She seems to be retreating a little bit away from that. And so she, for example, in New York yesterday, she said, uh, that uh, really this was an update on the state of the negotiations. So if she uh, decides that, uh, that she can't actually say what the end state is going to be because her cabinet is divided and that she only talks about the transition, maybe she can keep them all together for now on the basis of that. But the fact that Boris has flexed his muscles and has shown that he is uh, still a force to be reckoned with. It's something that has destabilized the politics of the Conservative Party. Boris appeared to be on his way out. Nobody was talking about him. He wasn't talking much. And Boris Johnson is very much back, and back as a contender for the leadership of the Conservative Party again.
0: Dennis, lo- looking, uh, looking at the broader view, uh, six months after Article 50, do you, do you think we any, have any better, better idea about what Brexit might look like in the end?
2: I think we I think that it's it's slow and that you get sort of two steps forward one step back but some things have happened uh, in the last few months, particularly over the summer, it is now pretty clear that Britain does want a transitional arrangement, uh, so that after it leaves in March 2019, that for a couple of years it's going to stay. Uh, uh, you know, it's going to keep things more or less the same as they are now in terms of access to the single market, the customs union, to give them and business a chance to kind of adapt to a new reality a couple of years hence. And it's also clear that Britain is prepared to pay something into the European Union budget. For the privilege of doing that. Now, these payments, whatever they make, uh, you know, and we don't know what sum that's going to be agreed on, but that goes some way into towards resolving one of the big problems, which is the whole business of how much Britain is going to have to pay to leave the European Union, because it leaves obviously a big gap in the budget if it just walks off. So I think we're close enough to resolving that, or getting getting towards an area where they could find agreement. What we still don't know, partly because uh, the British government itself is uh, is not uh, agreed on this, is what exactly is the arrangement going to be at the very end? What is the relationship between Britain and the European Union going to be after the transition arrangement is over? And for that, we're really going to have to wait until the British government can work out its own internal differences.
0: Dennis, finally, uh, you live in London, of course, uh, which was overwhelmingly Remain. Uh, wh- what, do, what do people there now think of Brexit and the process? I mean, is the despair the same or is it greater than ever or are people just getting on with things?
2: I think that uh, for the most part people, uh, whether they voted to leave or to remain, uh, accept the result and and kind of want to get on with it. Most people don't follow the details of the, the sort of things we've just been talking about. But, re- but leave voters, and I, I was talking to uh, a number of friends who voted to leave just the other day, and they're very, very impatient with uh, the way this is going. They don't like what they seem, what they perceive to be the way the whole thing is being talked down. And they were hard by the tone of what Boris Johnson was saying. And they don't really care whether the figures he's talking about are right or wrong. The point is, that, you know, their attitude is, if it's not 350 a week, if we're getting back 250 a week, then that's fine. That's what we want. But nonetheless, they, they want to see Brexit happening. They're not too hung up on the transitional arrangement. They accept that. But they just want to make sure that there's no backsliding and that there's no possibility of the decision being reversed. And frankly, from where we are now, there's not much sign of public opinion changing to the point where the decision will be
0: reversed. Dennis Staunton, thank you for joining us. Thanks to today's contributors, Erin Kilbride, Derek Scally, and Dennis Staunton. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon and Jennifer Ryan. I'm Dave McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on whatever podcast platform you use or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcast.